Hello, and welcome to Holly History, where we discuss what you want to hear. Bringing you the story and answering your questions. No fake news, no alternative facts. Just history, all the time. Hello and welcome to Holly History, we discuss what you want to hear. Mr. D back here again today for another history short. Uh, we're going to do this one on the Cold War, we just left off World War II. So this is going to be a little bit different than some of the shorts we've done in the past actually, where we're going to break this one into parts. I know we did industrialization in two parts, but we're going to break the Cold War into three parts because really... This is a, a complex unit. There's so many layers going on, so many different things that students um, have to get a good feel on for the Reads exam as well as, you know, any other exams you're taking in your classes for review. And also, we we're hoping that this kind of provides some, some deeper understanding during this time of distance learning. So we hope you're going to enjoy here part one of part three on the Cold War. Um, I do want to point out, though, really quickly that I'm doing something a little bit different here. I'm trying to use the student notes a little bit more because I want to make sure that we're covering all of our bases in the material. So hopefully this comes out. If the episode sounds choppy to you, a little off maybe, I'm not on my game. That's probably because we're trying to do something new. But we hope you enjoy part one here of our three-part series on the Cold War. So the Cold War basically is a decades-long struggle, about 40 years, give or take. People have uh, differing opinions on when it starts. From about the end of World War II, so about 1945-46, stretching all the way until the early 1990s. Uh, the Cold War is a, a decades-long period of international tension between the Soviet Union, formerly Russia, and the United States of America. Now, World War II uh, left the world in shambles again, just like the first one did. And the, the only country to rise from the ashes is the, the true superpower of that war was the United States. I mean, it reboosted the economy, pulled them out of the Great Depression, and left the U.S. kind of as the elite superpower. But not far behind what you have is the Soviet Union. Now, the Soviet Union, let's talk about why these two countries are even going to be at odds at all. And it has to do with their ideologies. Um, the United States is a, a capitalist economy and a d democracy republic. Again, there's tons of debates that people can have much smarter than me whether the United States is truly a democracy, truly a republic, a mix of both. Um, my own opinion is it's kind of a mix of both. So the United States uh, prides itself on its capitalist economy, you know, the free market um, where individuals can buy and, and consume products that they, they wish and what's produced is based on what people want. And uh, its government, you know, prides itself on individual freedom, liberty, uh, freedom of religion, all of those things, you know, so that those are kind of the base ideals of the United States. And if you look at the Soviet Union, formerly Russia uh, comes out of, you know, World War One when they become the Soviet Union. Their ideals are a little bit different. They they pride themselves much much more. If you look at uh, some of the you know I'm not going to get into this. It can be an episode about you know communism and socialism, but uh, they pride themselves on economic stability and economic equality. You know they they would be offended by the social classes of the United States having you know the extreme rich, uh, the Rockefellers, the Carnegies, those kinds of people. 
they focus more on collective rights rather than individual rights, and they really want to prevent uh, the rich from taking advantage of the poor. Karl Marx, the founder of communism, really, you know, and Frederick Engels really believed that all of history can be explained through uh, class struggle. The idea of the rich taking advantage of the poor and, um, you know, that that's that they're working off the backs of the laborers and that the laborers and the, the, the lower classes need to overthrow the business class and the government. In some cases, they mix them um, and form a start to form a classless society. So the Soviet Union is offended by a lot of the ideals of the United States. And the United States is offended by a lot of the ideals of the Soviet Union, you know, um, so you know the Soviet Union is known for uh, restrictions on free speech, individual rights, and religion. Um, those are things that Americans are very, very big on. So you can kind of see why the United States is afraid of communism. Um, you know, some of the things of, I have a slide that you know I show the students. You know, communism. Why does it scare us? Because as eighth graders, they have a hard time understanding. You know, how can anybody be different than us? Um, you know, when you get older, it's a little bit easier to understand why the two sides don't like each other. So on this slide, I include, you know, what are some basic things the United States found on freedom of speech, religion, limited government, you know, making sure the government's not too powerful. And, you know, you go through some of the things that the, that the founders were afraid of, like, you know, dictatorship, kings, monarchy, the government having too much power. And as you go through that list, you can kind of see how, you know, the Soviet Union is led by a premier, kind of a dictator, the party, right? Um, a, a government that's powerful, that does a lot of things. You know, the Soviets would see that as a good thing from their perspective, right? The government's helping me, it's doing these things, whereas Americans kind of see that as too much power. So I hope I've done a decent job as to why, to show you why the United States um, doesn't like communist socialist ideals and wants to make sure that they're uh, they're not spreading all over the world, right? That we're, you know, and the United States kind of has allies and so does the Soviet Union. We'll get into that a little bit in, uh, later. And the last reason these two nations are kind of at odds is because the United States uses the atomic bomb at the end to end World War II. And the Soviets see that as kind of like, oh, they're showing that, that off, that, um, you know, that they have that power and using that as a deterrent against us. Um, at the end of World War II and kind of showing us, hey, don't mess with us. And eventually both countries will have nuclear weapons and a lot of them. And that's another reason for the tension of why Americans are afraid of the, of the communists and the, uh, the Soviet Union specifically, because they have a lot of things that could blow us up and we have a lot of things that could blow them up from their perspective. So as you could see, you know, the divisions are just uh, ripe for these two sides in the Cold War. Now, this episode is going to take us through the earliest stages of the Cold War. Right away at the end of World War II, the United States could not bring its troops home fast enough. They wanted to demobilize, get the men home, get them out of Europe, and um, you know bring them back. The Soviet Union was a little bit different. The Red Army stayed together in Eastern Europe. You have to remember these two armies met in Berlin, uh, the Soviets from the East, the allies like Britain, France, and so... What you have here is the, the British and the Americans are demobilizing the troops. The Soviet Union is not doing that as much. And the Soviet Union in Eastern Europe, instead of leaving and allowing these countries to have free elections, Stalin decides, you know what, we're going to stay and we're going to add this these places to the Soviet Union. Places like Estonia, Latvia, um, you know, half of Poland, things like that. So that was already right at the outset, kind of a signal that, whoa, this is going to be... This is going to be interesting. You can argue that's a response even to the United States using the atomic bomb in Japan, that maybe Stalin's feeling a little bit threatened, that he needs to hang on to things, but whatever. What You have the, the situation here kind of um, occurring with some tension here in Eastern Europe and Berlin in particular. And Berlin's going to be the focus of much of our story, which is the capital of Germany. Now, Harry S. Truman is the president of 
the United States, and I would argue that the tensions between Truman and Stalin and this time in the Cold War is, is one of the hottest times, right at the end of World War II, from about 1945 till the early 1950s. Uh, the world is on that brink of maybe a third world war, for all we know. So we've got this, the Red Army and the Soviet Union sticking around in Eastern Europe and East Germany. Now, you have the tensions of ideals, and now you have the tensions of that the, you know, the Soviets are there in East Germany. So this becomes a strategy that the United States will develop that will be the U.S. policy for a very long time. That's something called containment. It's kind of mixed with the term the Truman Doctrine as well. Basically, the U.S. says we can't, you know, we don't want to fight another war against the Soviets. And if we do, we know what that's going to look like. The two most powerful countries in the world going at it will mean disaster. We've seen how world wars work out in the past. So Truman essentially says, well, we can't stop communism and we don't want to fight the Soviet Union directly, but we will contain the spread of communism. And this is huge, guys. you got to know this. The U.S. policy for much of the Cold War is the policy of containment, which basically is simple. We're going to contain and stop the spread of communism whatever way we can. If that means sending money to places, we'll do that. If that means uh, rebuilding other countries like West Germany with the Marshall Plan and the rest of Europe, that means we'll do that. We don't want to have to fight the Soviets, but we will fight countries we think are potentially falling to communism. And you'll see containment continuously raise its head throughout the Cold War. So the Marshall Plan giving you know, over $13 billion to war-torn countries um, in Europe and, and rebuilding Japan after the war, you know that was kind of seen as, you know, we're going to help these people up, so hopefully they don't turn communist, and hopefully they, they agree with us. Now you're going to hear me start to use a couple terms here the Western nations of the world. I want to just talk about what that is. The Western nations are countries like the United States, Britain, Canada, France. These nations are the West, largely capitalist economies, democracies, um, you know, people that think like the U.S. does. The opposite of that is obviously the Soviet Union and their allies, okay? And you're going to have two organizations form here. The first one is a North Atlantic Tree Organization that will form in 1949, and it'll be known as NATO. NATO, that's the West. The United States, Canada, Britain, France, those countries that will form the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, NATO. Those will be the, the Western nations, the enemies of the Soviets. The Soviets in 1955 will form the Warsaw Pact, which is an alliance of communist nations to oppose NATO. So you have NATO, which is the West, and the Soviets and their allies, which is the Warsaw Pact. The next thing I want to talk about is where these early showdowns of the Cold War take place. And they really face off in East Germany and East, Ber uh, East Berlin, Eastern Europe. The big question after World War II is how do we treat a defeated Germany? We saw what happened with the Treaty of Versailles last time. Let's try and avoid that. So Germany gets divided into four military zones. Britain, France, and the United States will control the zones in West Germany. And the Soviets will control the zones in East Germany. Now, here's where it gets complicated. The most important city of any nation is its capital. In this case, Germany's capital is Berlin. Now, Berlin lies in the eastern section. So, the Berlin is in the Soviet sector. So, then Berlin is divided into American, French, British halves in the west of Berlin. And then in the eastern half of Berlin, that's the Soviet sector. So, you have these, uh, the western nations, the NATO nations like Britain, France, the United States... Their sections of Berlin are surrounded by East Germany and East Berlin. So this is where things will get very, very complicated. So if, if Stalin or any Soviet leader, any of the Soviets wanted to do anything to West Berlin, they could because they're virtually surrounded. So this is where it gets complicated. 
1948, Stalin is upset with some of the decisions made by uh, Western leaders in West Germany. I think it was specifically the introduction of the Deutschmark, which would be the German dollar coming up. And he saw this as economic imperialism by the, the Western nations, the NATO nations, specifically the United States. And so what he decides to do is blockade West Berlin, cut off anything from getting in or out. And he also will decide to cut off the power to that half of the city. So Truman is faced with a hard decision here. Do I, you know, do I attack uh, the Soviet Union and launch World War III? Do I, you know, try some other kind of military action? And what we're going to see here is Truman acting very cool under pressure, as we'll see some other presidents do in the Cold War. Truman um, kind of calls Stalin's bluff without actually getting violent and will use uh, airplanes to drop in food, fuel, and supplies to the citizens of Western Berlin for over a year. And Stalin now, this this whole, you know, this is, I want you to think about one other concept here, guys, is that this whole Cold War is kind of a war of ideas. And so the more people you win to your side by looking better, the better off you are. One of the biggest concepts here in this Cold War is nobody wants to throw the first punch. Nobody wants to be the country that launches World War III and to be the aggressor. Everybody wants to look good on the world stage. Nobody wants any bad press. Um, and nobody wants to look overly violent. The better you look, the better you come out of something like this looking, the better off you'll be and bring more people to your side, therefore kind of winning the Cold War. So it really is a battle of ideas and who kind of looks better. So Stalin doesn't look very good right now. He's blockaded the city. Um, the, the Allies have to fly supplies in. And after a year, he kind of gives up the blockade, and this becomes known as the Berlin Airlift. It's one of the earliest moments of the Cold War. Some historians think it's the start of the Cold War. Um, and Truman makes a really, really solid move here. So credit to Harry Truman for avoiding World War III and still getting supplies to people in uh, in West Berlin. So very, very significant Berlin Airlift. Got to know that one. And just to kind of close this off, I want you to understand that Berlin is very, very important. Okay, this is where much of the Cold War will kind of, you know, ebb and flow, be decided, will always be in the minds of, of uh, negotiators on both sides and both nations, because, you know, whichever uh, one foreign diplomat, I think for the Soviets actually said, as Berlin goes, so goes Germany. And Germany was kind of seen as, you know, the, will Germany become a communist nation when it unites or will it be a Western democratic capitalist nation? You know, so it's, it's all this war to try to win the hearts and minds. But back home in the United States during the kind of like early 50s, the early goings of the Cold War, people are terrified of communism and socialism, um, more specifically communism. And you're going to see people under fear acting kind of a funny way. And it sparks this thing called McCarthyism. Joe McCarthy was a senator from Wisconsin. I always like to talk about, you know, what's it like, like what's life like back at home for Americans during some of these big world events? And there was a lot of famous trials in the early 50s, people selling secrets to the Soviets, because let me be clear, there were people within the United States that considered themselves as maybe a socialist or a communist. I think I talked about this in the 20s episode. It's okay to have those political opinions. There's a socialist party in the United States, right? Now, if you take that to an extreme to help out a foreign nation, you know, overthrow your government or help out the Soviets, that's a little bit different. We're getting into treason now. But just thinking or having or believing those ideas isn't necessarily illegal. We have the First Amendment right to freedom of speech. So this, but this kind of is an awkward time for the U.S. We've seen the government of the U.S. do this in the past where, you know, if they feel threatened or if something's a, a big deal, like in World War One or Two, they have the right to restrict free speech. So we're going to start to see this happen with McCarthyism. Now, let me tell you this. 
by the end of this, Joe McCarthy's career is over and people do not look at him very fondly. So one of the biggest areas that Joe McCarthy and some in government thought that uh, there was communism or socialism around was Hollywood, let's be honest. You know, Hollywood is kind of seen as the more liberal area of the country uh, still to this day. And, and Joe McCarthy thought that there was lots of, you know, Hollywood stars, famous actors. He even thought, he even accused the military, that there's people in the military that were communists and socialists. And so he had these public trials uh, that were televised, accusing people of communism and socialism. I mean, it kind of just didn't look good, especially when he went after the military. That really upset the military. Um, when Joe McCarthy did that. And by, you know, in 1954, a lot of these public trials were held at their height. Um, there wasn't a ton of evidence that these people had any malicious plans against the U.S. government. They maybe held liberal beliefs or socialist beliefs or, you know, uh, even communist beliefs. But, you know, again, it kind of made the United States not look so good in the world stages, McCarthy trials. And by 1955, Joe McCarthy is completely out of public favor. But what the McCarthy trials demonstrate is that U.S. fear of the Soviet Union is different. They don't like individual freedoms as much as we do, people thought. They don't um, value freedom of religion, individual freedom, uh, economic freedom, you know. And the Soviet and people who were Soviet probably would have the same criticisms of America in, in different ways. So I just want to make sure you're looking at both perspectives here, okay? Now, so Joe McCarthy completely falls out of favor, but what did his trials demonstrate was a deep fear that Americans had. And I want to also point out, by the time the McCarthy trials come around, the Soviets have uh, nuclear weapons, which is just adds to that fear. So the early 50s, really, really scary time. So that's going to kind of wrap up our first episode today. So if you are following along in the notes, 8th graders, and using this for uh, distance learning, this podcast, you should have just ended on that American fear and McCarthyism slide. Okay. I think it did a pretty good job keeping this episode short, trying to explain to you kind of the beginnings of the Cold War. Uh, the next episode, we're going to get into the Korean War, which will be kind of, you know, again, we're getting to that edge of World War III. Harry Truman's got one stressful presidency. So thank you for listening today to Holly History. I hope you enjoyed. I'm sorry about this. I know you just heard the episode end, but I wanted to add an addendum uh, to the end of the show, particularly for the middle school students who might listen to this to understand what the Soviet Union is. Um, high school folks reviewing for Regents, the episode is probably fine in its entirety, but I wanted to add this to the end to make things a little more clear. The Soviet Union is a group of states joined Okay, combined with kind of Russia being the one pulling all the strings. So there's other countries within the Soviet Union as a whole, you know, joined under that that communist socialistic banner, um, kind of with Russia as the country leading the charge. Some of these other countries in the, in the Soviet Union will include uh, Latvia, Estonia, Lithuania, nations like that, Ukraine. So I just wanted to point that out, that those other nations were part of the Soviet Union. They'll become countries after the Soviet Union breaks up. Um, you see them on the map today. If the Soviet Union breaks up in the 90s. So I just want to point out that the Soviet Union is more than Russia, but Russia is kind of that that nation that's, you know, the, where the seat of power is, right? Moscow is the seat of power. So I just wanted you guys to understand that, you know, mostly for the middle school students, what the Soviet Union is. So thanks for listening and sorry about that. You know, I wanted to just make it a little more clear here and a little addendum at the end. Thanks.